Well, good morning, everyone. Um, if you happen maybe not to know it, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with the church, and I get a chance to uh, get up into the pulpit and preach about once a month. And as I've been doing that lately, we've been moving through the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to keep doing that today. We're going to get into Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles or if you have a device you can turn on that will get you to your Bible, you can please open that up. If you don't have a Bible, actually, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you if you need that. Uh, And we'll be reading here uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. All right. So uh, before we do that, though, please pray with me again. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity for all of us to be gathered together here this morning. Um, And uh, I would simply ask, I I think of your word that that says that we are to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. And I just pray that you would use this message now to do just that. That you would encourage the uh, faint-hearted, you would admonish the idle, and you would help the weak. And I know some of us probably need all three of those things. So we just submit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man, uh, or, or what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity, a striving after the wind. Amen. All right. Well, you know, um, I'm guessing you know what I mean when I uh, mention the idea of food envy. You know what I'm talking about? You're, you're, uh, you're out to a restaurant with your friends, maybe. You're out with your family. And, uh, well, first of all, you have, you, it takes forever to order a meal because all the food on the menu looks amazing. And then you finally do get around to ordering this meal and the, everybody's food comes and then suddenly you look over to the plate that's next to you and you think, ugh, I ordered the wrong food. I want that food, not what I have that's right in front of me. I know I ordered this, but I want that. It's food envy. Um, I think that you know what I'm talking about. You've probably been there. Well, this passage in Ecclesiastes, I think, um, it begs a question of us. And that question is, Do you enjoy what you have? Do you enjoy what you have? Now, obviously, it has to do with more substantial things like uh, than uh, uh, food envy at at a restaurant. Um, But I think, again, do you enjoy what you have? In the language of of verse 2 here, think about 
whatever, whatever measure of wealth that you might have, whatever kind of reputation you might enjoy, whatever honor you have, um, your possessions, do you enjoy them? Do you, are you satisfied with them? And this part of Ecclesiastes would say that we should be. Do enjoy what you have, the writer says, rather than craving what you don't have. I would say that that's the the essence of the little proverb there in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Or in other words, as another Bible version has it, simply enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Enjoy what you have um, rather than thinking along the lines of here's a here's a maybe a more contemporary little proverb the grass is greener on the other side of the fence you've heard that before i imagine the grass is greener on the other side of the fence and that's the alternative right this thinking that um you're 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 not really satisfied with your own situation you're not you you you, you look around and you're not really satisfied and so you kind of let your eyes come up Your imagination starts to wander a little bit, maybe wander over the neighbor's fence, so to speak, and you kind of drop in and you say, whoa, what they have is better. They've got a better house. They've got a a, a better paying job. Um, They've got whatever it might be, just a better backyard. It's better, whatever it might be. Um, It might not even be really uh, necessarily physical things. Their greener grass for you might be... um, uh, might be a better marriage. Their, their greener grass might be a better homeschool situation. Um, it might be any number of things. It might be that they have a better reputation. Whatever it might be, the grass is greener on the other side. And you want that. You want that so much that what you have becomes, well, really not all that exciting. Not all that amazing. Not, not really all that satisfying. But verse 9 would challenge us and simply say, no, enjoy what you have rather than um, uh, desiring what you don't. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. I think that's the thrust of uh, this, the thrust of the message for us in this part of Ecclesiastes. And so for the sake of our time today, I just kind of want to unpack that emphasis a bit. And so, uh, first of all then, just thinking about the first part of that emphasis, thinking about enjoyment. What is that enjoyment anyway? Um, If this passage is calling us to enjoy what we have, then what does that really mean? In other words, um, to what are we actually being called here? Um, and, And the answer to that, I think, is essentially it's contentment. It's contentment. I think the writer is saying to that, that enjoyment here, enjoy what we have, essentially meaning be content. So kind of first of all, just think rightly about what we're being charged with here, okay? It is to be content. Um, so it's not so much kind of a, uh, where you would just find all sorts of deep pleasure in the things that you might have. Uh, well, your money, your possessions, your honor, might have, whatever it would be. Or it's not kind of a bouncing off the walls, just I'm excited about everything that I have. Um, or it's not sort of a, I want to have fun with everything I have. Okay, Now, not that ne- those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. Um, in fact, um, later in the, the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 8, verse, eight, uh, verse 15, 815, there the writer does say, I commend joy. He says, 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. Be joyful there, meaning be glad. Rejoice. Have an ex- kind of an excited joy about you. But I think it's a different kind of enjoyment in this particular context. So just sticking to the, the context here, I think the idea of enjoyment really is this call to contentment. A call to be content. Meaning, um, just fleshing it out a little bit more in this context, a sense of rest. It's a sense of being satisfied, a sense of being filled. So you think about an amusement park. We're not talking about that kind of amusement park enjoyment kind of fun here, but we're talking more about a satiated appetite. A satiated appetite. In verse 7, you see another little proverb there. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And the picture of contentment is kind of the other side of that. It's to be satisfied, meaning to be filled, to, to have a sense of filling. Not, not so much kind of a full stomach, like, you, like it's a packed out stomach, uh, like you might have as you overdo it at a Thanksgiving meal, but, but, uh, but filled, satiated. You're satisfied. Your, your hunger is stemmed. You're feeling that you don't have really any need for more. You don't desire more. Um, Or if you consider verses 3 through 6, we see more of what I think enjoyment means here. In verses 3 to 6, that that little part of the the chapter, basically it's an illustration there to to show us this tragic example of a man who, who had it all, but he didn't enjoy it. Okay, he had, he, had all, he had many, many kids. He had he was many, many years. And uh, in the context of, of when this uh, would have been written, that would have been all that a guy could want. I mean, that was like the peak of blessing. That was almost the, the essence of blessing, to have lots of kids, to have long life. Um, here's a picture of a man who had it all. It would be like his, this guy in his life kind of was what looks so green on the other side of the fence that we're all probably tempted to, uh, to, to move toward and think, yes, that's greener. That's what I want. And he had it. But he doesn't enjoy it. He's not satisfied uh, with it. And, and this unsatisfied man is contrasted with a stillborn child. A stillborn child of all things. It seems kind of uh, strange. The writer says a stillborn child has it better than this guy. And uh, again, I think that sounds a little strange. So what, what could be better about the stillborn situation? And verse 5, I think, answers that. Verse 5 says, Moreover, the stillborn has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. And I think that's the key. He finds rest. And the idea with rest there, it points to a kind of a sense of peace or freedom. It's freedom from toil. It's freedom from anxiety. Not, not anxious that you need more. Not anxious feeling like you've got to have more. Or there's deep, deep desires that, that maybe aren't being um, met. That's enjoyment in this context. Be filled, satiated, um, satisfied with what you have, at rest with what you have, or in a word, content. And the Net Bible actually just translates it that way. The Net Bible translates verse 9 simply, It is better to be content uh, with what the eyes can see. So are you content? It begs the question, are you content with what you have? I'm going to let that question uh, continue to simmer a little bit here, and I'll, I'll come back and press on that a little bit later. 
Now, there really are um, two, two uh, kind of parts of the thrust of this message, I would say. On the one hand, um, the, the, or I should say this chapter, um, on the one hand, it's be content with what you have. And then on the other hand, it is don't be uh, or don't desire what you don't have. Uh, that's kind of the, the flip side of that. So let's explore that here just a little bit, this second piece of the overall thrust of the, of the passage. Don't desire what you don't have. Don't give in to food envy, we might say. Or don't give in to this thinking that, hey, the grass is greener on the other side. Don't give in to that. Or, or with verse 9, don't give in to the wandering heart, as he calls it. The wandering appetite, rather. The wandering appetite. And why might we give in to that wandering appetite? Or we could ask, why are you discontent? You could ask yourself that. Why are you discontent? Or, or, or better, what's underneath any kind of discontent that you might feel. What's the, the heart of it? And I think there could be uh, a few different answers to that, but I think in context here, the answer in context here, I think, is covetousness. It's covetousness. That's really what's, what, that, that's what the wandering appetite is in this context. It's covetousness. So if enjoyment here is essentially contentment, then the other side of it, this wandering heart, is, is essentially covetousness. And I say that because this part of, uh, of, the, of the book is set in a larger kind of literary unit, and it begins back in chapter 5, verse 10. And so just if you make note of that verse again, chapter 5, verse 10, that says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so there's this lover of money and income over there at chapter 5, verse 10. And then you come into chapter 6, and, and verses 2 and 3, you have this man who has it all, but he's not satisfied. And then you come to verse 9, and you see this idea of a wandering, a wandering appetite. So you, these, these things tie together such that a wandering appetite is basically another way to speak of this covetous heart in the money lover of... Uh, of chapter 5, verse 10, or the unsatisfied man uh, here in this chapter. And it is a covetous heart that's going to get in the way of truly resting content with all that we have. And so, um, open yourself to be challenged a bit here this morning. If you would say that you are not content with what you have, then take caution, take care, because it's likely that underneath that discontent is covetousness, a covetous heart. That's underneath your discontent. And man, the writer says that is vanity. That is futility. That's what the, the writer calls an evil in verse 1, or a grievous evil, he says in verse 2. And that idea of, of vanity or futility, of course, common theme throughout Ecclesiastes. And um, the, the sense of it in this immediate uh, scenario is that it's a grievous evil. Or, or that means essentially that it's tragic. It's just a sickening tragedy, as some uh, translate it. And it is just simply tragic, the writer is saying. It's tragic that a person could have all that he thinks he needs to be content and yet not be content. Or worse, that, that you would actually have everything you need to be content, and you're not content. You have everything you need to be content, but you're not. The tragedy here is that you would have everything you need right there before you. It's like you've got that, 
that, uh, that meal right in front of you, and yet you're not content with it. So your, your, your appetite starts to, starts to wander, starts to look around, starts to crave, starts to want other things, starts to think other things are better, starts to think other things are better that maybe somebody else has. And you're thinking, as you're wandering, you're thinking, if only I had that, I would, life would be better. If only I had that, I would be happy. If only I had that, I would be uh, content or satisfied. And then the result with that is, and here's the tragedy, is that you have what you want, and you don't want it. You have what you want, but you don't want it. Can you feel the futility in that? You, and, and in the silly example of food envy, you, you ordered the dish, you got what you want, but you don't want it. That's vanity. That's simply tragic, the writer says. And so, consider, you have all the salary that you need. You have all the income, that is. Keep that clear in mind of the menu, right? Not salary, but salary. You have all the salary that you need. You have income, but you want more. You've got, you've got a house that is perfectly suitable to all your needs, but you want a bigger house. Or you want a, a, a different job. You, 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 you're, you want more uh, vacation time. You've got all the vacation time that you need, but you want more. Now, hear me. It's not necessarily bad to want those things, okay? I'm not saying that it's wrong to desire those things. Don't hear me say that. But the futility here, the, the tragedy here, the, 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 the tragedy in this is that that comes to us when that desiring, when your desiring kind of amps up to starting to be a craving, and you now start thinking that you actually do need that thing in, in order to be content. Now we've crossed a line. You think that that thing over there really is better, and you need to have that better thing in order to be content. And then that robs you of contentment now with what you have. That's, uh, that's what's tragic, that your desires for other things robs you of contentment with what you have. And that's especially tragic because, remember, God gave you what you have. God gave you what you have, and you are not content with what God has given you. Verse 2 alludes to that. God is, God is ultimately the giver of all the good things that we could have. He gives us the things that we need to to kind of rest, feeling filled. And and all we have, it's a gift from Him. Now again, not not wrong to ask for what we don't have. I mean, it may be that God would yet give us what we don't have, and it's not wrong to ask for that. But again, the vanity here, the futility here, the tragedy here, comes when our desire for that something moves beyond a simple prayer request. And, and now it becomes a craving for what you think you need, and it overwhelms your contentment. It overtakes your contentment. It steals your, your contentment. And that's the tragedy here. And you, you begin to think that maybe God hasn't given me enough. Maybe what God has given me really isn't that great. It's not that valuable. You start to think, man, why did God give my friend that thing, but he didn't give it to me? And so on, as the thinking goes. That's a wandering appetite. After craving, always craving for more. It's wandering. Uh, it's a wandering desire, thinking that if only I had that thing, then I would, ha- I, I would be truly content. I could be content if I had it. Or on the other hand, it's rather than kind of wanting that thing out there, it's this, it's this hoarding, it's this, it's this jealous guarding of what I do have because, man, if I lose this, I'm not, I'm not going to be satisfied. 
I won't have enough if I lose this. That's the wandering appetite. And that comes from a covetous uh, heart. And that is tragic. Charles Spurgeon pointed out that if you say, if you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. He says, you make a mistake if you think like that. You are mistaken, sir. You make a mistake. The fact is, he says, if you're not content with what you have, you will not be satisfied if it were double. It's, it's a simply, you're simply mistaken if you think that way. And, um, and uh, that's, that's the way it is. You're wrong. You won't be satisfied even if what you had is doubled, if you truly are discontent with what you have now. Um, but this is the wandering appetite. It's a covetous heart. And that's important to see, by the way, um, that it's a covetous heart here. Because if you, you might notice in verse 2, um, there it says that um, God does not give the man their power to enjoy his wealth or his honor or his possessions. Well, that sounds strange to me. Why would God give you something? Why would he give a man something and then not give him power to enjoy that? Or power to be content with it. Well, if we understand that the man in view there is a covetous man with a wandering appetite, then it starts to make a little bit more sense, I think. And so it's not as though God is sort of being mean. He's not kind of dishing out stuff, just teasing people. But, oh, I'm not going to give you power to enjoy that. I'm not going to give you that power. But here you go. You can play with the stuff, but you can't, have, you can't enjoy it. It's not that he's doing that. I think the picture here, rather, is that that God is not willing to indulge the covetous heart. God will not indulge the covetous heart. God will not empower the covetous pursuit. God's not going to get behind you, so to speak. He's not going to get behind you and empower you to go find true contentment in other things, to to go looking for true contentment in some sort of way that's disconnected from him. He won't empower that. So, Enjoy what you have, be content with what you have, rather than craving what you don't have, rather than that wandering appetite. And if you have a wandering appetite, then likely you have a covetous heart. If your appetite is wandering, you probably have a covetous heart. And God will not indulge your pursuit of your covetous desires. He won't empower you to go get true contentment in some way disconnected from him. Now, so I've raised the question a couple times, do you enjoy what you have? Do you enjoy what you have? Are you content with what you have? Um, And again, are you? That's to be considered. Are you? You think about your job, or you think about your salary, you think about your home. Uh, consider your, your, your time, your schedule, these sorts of things. Are you content with these? Are you feeling filled? Are you uh, satisfied? Are you at rest with them? And some of you might say, yeah, actually, yes, I'm, I'm satisfied. And I would say, I hope you are. I hope that's true. Um, but I would challenge you um, that you might not be as content as you think you are. And you may, in fact, be more greedy, covetous than you think you are. You may have more of a wandering heart than you think you do. So just think about this with me for a minute um, and kind of just open yourself to be challenged, however the Lord would uh, possibly challenge you this morning. 
Um, in, in one of our Sunday classes, we're using some material by a, a fellow named Tim Chester. And uh, a recent class unit that we had, um, uh, Tim Chester was speaking about generosity. And he was speaking about the various ways that, that um, individuals and churches can, can uh, have trouble being generous. from the areas in which uh, we can have trouble being generous. And he points out a few things, but among them, he speaks of time. He speaks of money. And he speaks of um, our homes. So, let, so consider that. Uh, what about your time? What about your time? Chester points out that many of us don't really see ourselves as necessarily financially poor, but we might think of ourselves as time poor. Some of us might think in those categories. We're time poor, and so time for us is this like diminishing commodity. And so we have to guard it jealously in order to, um, in order to keep it. And, and so... Uh, Chester points out that this means then that time for others is relatively scarce. Time for others is relatively scarce. And we might even resent people if they start to encroach on our our time. Uh, They start to uh, get in the way of what our priorities are with how we might want to use our time. Um, So we can get greedy. We can get covetous for our downtime or for our, our family time. It's family time, man. Don't bother me. Uh, It's vacation time. Don't call me. I'm on vacation. Whatever it might be. Or just me time. Whatever that is. Uh, um, If you're a father of a four and a half year old, you know what you you can covet me time pretty well, pretty easily. Um, So so just consider how that, that lands on you. If you say that you're content with what you have, um, then what about when others do encroach on your family time or your vacation time? If you say you're content with what you have, what happens when the four-year-old comes running in and wants to play when that was not on your mind or whatever it might be? Um, can you kind of get greedy there, sort of hoarding your time, guarding it jealously, getting upset when people interrupt you and interrupt the flow of your schedule? Th- those are issues of covetousness there underneath the surface. There's, covet, there's a covetousness, covetousness issue there. What about money? Uh, what about money? Chester says that money is far more than a mere medium of exchange. And I think he's right on here. He says it is, amongst other things, a means of identity and security. Money is a means of identity and security. Um, it makes a statement and it secures our future. And so he says, that helps to explain why many of us find it difficult to be generous with it. Because if we give it away, if we have less of it, well, then I have less. And less money threatens my identity. Less money threatens my sense of security. So you say that you're content with your salary. You say that you're, you're not greedy or covetous for more. Then why don't you give more of your money away? If you're so content with it, why don't you give more of it away? Or why are you breaking off maybe some really good relationships in one job and you're going to go to another job? Why are you doing that if you're so content with your income? Or why are you working so much overtime to the neglect of your family or to the neglect of your church or to the neglect of your church family? If you're so content with what you have, why are you doing that? And just be challenged by that. Be challenged by that. There, there could be 
covetousness in your heart. There could be. Um, or what about your home? Chester says that we often think of our homes as, as a castle. It's not new with Chester, I don't think. That's, uh, we do often think of our homes as castles. It's our refuge. It's our, it's our place of escape from the world. It's our place of rest. But insofar as our home is our refuge, Chester says, then it becomes a Jesus substitute. If our home is our refuge, it's a Jesus substitute. And I think he's on to something there because the fact is that if we are united to Jesus by faith, if we are believing what Doug spoke about here with the Lord's Supper, if we are trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and right relations with God, then we are married to Christ. We are united to Christ. We are in Christ. And God himself would be our refuge. That's one of his greatest promises to us, that he would be our refuge. God is our refuge in Jesus, not our home. And so you say that you're content with what you have. Then why is your home walled off from the world? Why is your home not more opened up to hospitality in your neighborhood? Why is your home not more opened up to be a blessing, uh, a, source, a place of blessing, a source of, uh, of good for people in your neighborhood or even others in the church family uh, for that matter? Our home cannot give us the rest that God can. Our money can't do that. Our time cannot secure for us the kind of contented life that we want, the kind of rest that we want. Um, and insofar as we think they can, they're Jesus substitutes. Insofar as we think time, money, home, other things can basically provide and protect us, they are Jesus substitutes, which means they are idols. That's what it is to be a Jesus substitute. It's an idol. That's why Colossians 3.5, a familiar passage, Colossians 3.5, the Apostle Paul there says that covetousness is idolatry. He says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, he says, idolatry. So right there with um, better known and uh, more often rejected sins like sexual immorality, right there on par is covetousness. And Paul says it's idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. That's why actually the Bible um, contrasts um, on the one hand, the love of money, and on the one hand, and the promise that God will always be with us and never forsake us, on the other hand. We, we think that money can, can get for us the kinds of things that only God can actually be for us. And so that's why, actually, the Bible will, con, uh, will contrast them. We think that money and God can be, or money and possessions can be a, a God's substitute of, of some sort. And so the reason why covetousness is idolatry is because it looks to substitute God. So our covetous hearts, I mean yours and mine, I am right in here. Our covetous hearts. We look to things like our salary, we look to things like our time, or our home, or other things to stand in and provide what only God can provide for us, or to protect us in a way that only God can do. That's idolatry. Replacing God with a false God. Looking to something other than God to do what only God can do. And that idol um, might have a name for us. And, and for you, it might be home. For me, that name of my idol might be time. Um, for you, it might be your job. Whatever it might be. But our idols have names. And so this is actually a pretty serious issue. Because actually, Ephesians 5 
says there, in fact, that Paul is speaking there, and he says, you may be sure of this. He, Paul here, he says, you can be sure of something. This is Ephesians 5, 5. He says, you can be sure of this, that everyone who is covetous, that is, he says, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the stakes are pretty high. Better to be content with what you have. Better that than this wandering appetite. Much better. Uh, And not the least of reasons why is because everyone who is covetous has no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let that challenge you this morning. Let let the Lord just challenge you with the question um, of whether or not you are content, whether or not you are flirting with covetousness in the way you make decisions. Um, Consider how tightly you guard your things like time or money or your home um, or your honor, maybe in, in your workplace or whatever it might be. Consider actually, too, what are the standards that you have for those things? Um, and what if you didn't meet those standards? Are you still going to be content? Or maybe you're not actually as content as you thought you were. Maybe you're more covetous than you realize. Now, maybe you might readily admit, no, I'm not content, actually. I, you got me. Um, actually, I'm pretty restless. I'm, I'm pretty restless. I don't feel filled. I'm always thinking that grass is greener on the other side. That's just kind of the, the, what I do. Um, well, I think the word there is simply take caution. Because if that's you, then it's very possible that your heart, or that under that, is a heart of essentially covetousness, which is idolatry. So take caution if that's your attitude. And for all of us, I think, the flip side of that, I think truly resting content with what we have really is about trust. It's, this is not brain surgery or rocket science. It is about trust. It's a matter of faith. Um, it's especially faith in a particular promise of God. Specifically, and I alluded to this earlier, uh, this is from Hebrews 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. There the writer very much speaks into, I think, the Ecclesiastes uh, 6 situation. And he simply says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, because, he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So be content with what you have. You have me. And I'm not going anywhere. This is his promise to us. Be content, God says. Why, we might ask. How? Because God said he'll never leave you or forsake you. That's the great, that's the greatest promise, really, for anyone. And it is the promise for all of us who are in Christ. Everyone united to Christ by faith has this promise. You're in Christ. If you're in Christ, then God truly is with you, always. Always. Jesus himself said, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Jesus also said to his disciples, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm, the Father is going to send a, a, a helper to be with you forever. That helper is namely the Holy Spirit. And really it comes down to whether or not we trust that to be true. So that, that's really the big question. I mean, do we trust that this is a true promise from God? Do we trust that he can carry out that promise? Is he good enough to make the promise in the first place, and is he strong enough to fulfill the promise in the second place? 
Um, it really comes down to trusting that, that that is true. It also comes to believing rightly about who God is. I mean, this promise that God is always going to be with you, that becomes um, really significant the more you grasp who God is. I mean, if I um, think about being with my wife, I, w- I want my wife to be with me because of who she is, because of what she's like. Or I want my friends, we want our friends to be with us because of who they are, because of what they like, not because they're some generic description of something, but because of who they are, because of what they, they like. And the more deeply we grasp who God is and what he's like, man, this, this promise just becomes arresting. It's amazing. It's an incredible gift to us. And so if we're trusting that God is good and he's just, God is faithful, God is all-powerful, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, he's wise, he's forgiving. And man, when you know things like this about God, then for him to always be with you, always, always be with you, for him to never forsake you, never, never forsake you, that's reason for contentment. That, you can rest in that place. You can be free from anxiety in that place, free from toil in that place, thinking you must have more in order to be satisfied. You can feel filled in that place. And, and real, actual, deep contentment is going to come from actually trusting that that's true. Again, this is not rocket science. This isn't brain surgery, um, uh, as they say. It's fairly straightforward. This is a matter of trusting that that's true. And contentment will rest in trusting that God himself will never leave you or forsake you. That promise in particular. Um, uh, rest. Uh, be free from anxiety about security or about identity. Secure in Jesus. And then... Man, listen, united to Jesus, at every point where you've not done that, at every point where you and I have failed miserably to actually believe God in that case, um, and we actually thought we needed a raise in order to be happy, or we actually thought we needed that other house to be happy, or we thought we needed that relationship to be happy, and we didn't trust God, that he was with us, at every point that we've kind of given in to food envy, we might say, or every point we've, we've really thought the grass is greener on the other side, and that's interrupted, that's robbed current contentment, and I've been a grouch because I think it's better over there. At every point that we've done that, at every point I've done that, Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not do that, and we are united to him. He never failed in that regard. Jesus entrusted himself fully to God, and he believed that God would never leave him or forsake him. He believed that, and, and that helped him uh, through life. And, he, and in, some, in, in, in a sense, he sets an example for us. But in another sense, he does what we could never do. And as we're united to him, uh, we have that as well. Now, there, there was a time, you might be thinking, that God did forsake Jesus. Jesus actually, there, there was a time when God did forsake him. And that was on the cross. That was when what was happening is celebrated with the Lord's Supper. On the cross, the God, God the Father essentially turned his back on Jesus as Jesus was bearing the wrath of the, 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 against the sin that we all deserve because of this discontented covetousness or, 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 or greediness. Um, he bore that. We deserved it, but he bore it in our place. 
And uh, in those moments, God did forsake Jesus. He turned away from him, but he turned back to Jesus in favor in his rising from the dead. And now because of what happened there, as we're united to Christ by faith, then we too are guaranteed this greatest promise that God will never leave us and never forsake us. We will always be with God and with others who are with God. Jesus was forsaken in our place. That is, that, that's incredible news. Jesus was forsaken in our place. And, and God doesn't intend that you would ever actually be content in any way sort of unhinged from that reality. So you might even say, yes, I'm content. Well, why are you content? Are you content because you believe that God will never leave you or forsake you? Or are you content because for the time being you have what you have and you, have what, and you want what you have? Um, it's an important question. There's actually a right or wrong answer to why are you content? Are we trusting this promise that God will never leave us or forsake us? And God never intends us to be content apart from that amazing promise. Um, and that promise is really meant to be the only lasting source of, of true and lasting contentment in life. It's intended to be that for us. And so when Ecclesiastes 6 here um, calls us to enjoy what we have rather than what we don't have, man, let's just um, kind of let that extreme grace of God just settle into our heart. Just, in, just incredible, extreme, almost inexplicable grace. Let it settle into your heart. You've got the promise of God's presence. You've got indomitable security in Jesus. And you have that right now, with everything that you have, with everything you don't have, you have the presence of God in your life. And so let that compel you to be satisfied with what he has given you right now. And rather than, of course, the flip side, this wandering appetite, longing for what we don't have. Um, Spurgeon said this, Charles Spurgeon, he said, I have heard of a good old woman in a cottage who had nothing but a, a piece of bread and a little water. And lifting up her hands, she said as a blessing, What? All of this? And Christ too? That's contentment. A little piece of bread, a little piece of water, all of that. And we get Christ. That's contentment. That's contentment. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. In Christ, we have the greatest possession that we could possibly have, and that is God himself. And pardon the cheesiness of this, but God is much more green than the grass on the other side. All right? Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for your word this morning. And again, I just simply repeat what I've asked, um, and that is that you would admonish us as we need it, and that you would encourage us as we need it, and you would help us as we need it. Uh, with as many people of us, as many of us are here, um, surely um, there are some who need admonishment. There are some who need encouragement. There are some who need help and some who need all three. And I pray that you would give it in your abundant, steadfast, merciful, gracious self. Give that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.